You are now listening to The Bannerman, an L.A. Kings podcast. It's been too damn long. It's been two damn months since we've been in your ear holes, but here we are. And if I told you in January that the Kings season wouldn't officially end until May 22nd, you would be pretty pumped, wouldn't you, Vardy? That would be fantastic. That would, that would have been exceeding all of my expectations. It would also be mathematically impossible, I'm pretty sure, by January. It was pretty obvious what was going to happen. But, yes, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a while. We are back. We are still in the middle of the craziest shit that we've ever been a part of. But we're back. How are you tonight, Vardy? Hanging in there, man. Hanging in there. Uh, You know, (laughs) having a lot of picnics (laughs) to whatever I can do to... Maintain sanity with two kids. That's good. That's all you can really do. You know, things are going to slowly open back up. We're going to creep towards the light. All of us holding our breath a little bit, I'm sure. But, hey, sounds like uh, let let this be. Let this episode be the first uh, chip in the armor of this pandemic. Let this be the, the harbinger of good things to come, shall it? Sure. That I put, that I put too much. You're more optimistic than I am. Let's just, I, that's let's all I got, buddy. All I got left is hope. That's true. Uh, all we got left is hope. The King season is officially over. Uh, today, the NHLPA voted uh, 29 to 2, I believe was the count, Vardy, to approve the league's return to play proposal that uh, essentially features a 2014 playoff. The NHL now has to approve that. But it seems like we're getting close to seeing the return, or getting closer, I should say, to seeing a return to hockey in some form or fashion. We'll get into that form or fashion uh, in more detail, but it's official, guys. The King season is over. We didn't make the cut. We are not a part of that 2014 <laughs> playoff it. rotation. So close. Any other year, <laughs> and the Kings make it. <laughs> not this year. <laughs> That's not right. this year. It was ever, not meant to be. Ever the bubble dwellers that we are. <laughs> all those years when the Kings were on the bubble, all those years where they were picking 11, <laughs> they would have made it. Not this time. They join the Magnificent Seven, I'm going to call them. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> the Magnificent Seven. Led by our leader, the Detroit Red Wings. Led by, well, yes, led by Detroit, but... Amazingly featuring all three California teams, which is astounding. We did it, guys. And beautiful and heartwarming in many ways. (laughs) Anaheim, Buffalo, Detroit, Los Angeles, New Jersey, Ottawa, San Jose. There you have it. The seven teams who, I guess, are going to remain quarantined until the next season starts. The ones who can really start focusing on drafting. Which is, you know, what, what we as Kings fans wanted. We as Kings fans want to look forward to. We're still in the lottery, baby. So, you know, they didn't take us out of that. I think I'd be more pissed, Vardy, wouldn't you? I mean, seven-game win streak aside, wouldn't you be more upset if the if they somehow squeaked the Kings into this new proposed playoff system? Uh, I guess so, because then it would be like some sort of a weird 30-team playoff monstrosity. And... I would have waited two months for them to come back only to be probably eliminated in a single elimination game or whatever kind of weird May Madness <laughs> bracket they're going to draw. You know, now that I think about it, with the pandemic and with so much uncertainty and so much time off, some wild stuff could happen in that tournament. Oh, 100%. It is very much a anything-can-happen scenario now Teams are still, you know, as stacked as they were or un- or <laughs> as unstacked as they were when right. the season ended. But with no real training camp, I mean, this is an offseason. This is a straight-up offseason. Yeah. With no training camp or anything like that, they're just going to be thrown into the fire. Although I assume there will be like a, a week practice beforehand or whatever. Yeah. But, man, anything could happen. Maybe we do want the Kings in this thing. I don't know. It's a tough, qu- it's a tough thing to I mean, think about. 
I mean, it's it's so strange. It really is so strange to go from like two straight months, no hockey, no one playing. A lot of these guys not even doing any skating drills. It, it sounds like, and now all of a sudden it's they're they're inching towards this, but they're they're probably still at least another month away from doing this. It's going to be at best, I think, end of June, July, August. This tournament, it's going to be a summer hockey tournament, basically. Um, yeah, which is interesting when you start talking about the whole plan of doing it at basically four hub cities to kind of limit travel and whatnot. Cause one of those cities that they're apparently strongly considering is Las Vegas. Now I've lived in Vegas for four years. Yes, you have. And, uh, let's just say July and August are not peak, uh, weather times for ice hockey, even in a beautiful indoor arena, like the T-Mobile arena. That is, you could put the AC on full blast, have every cooling coil in the world going. And, uh, it is. It's hard to keep a metal building cold in the middle of Las Vegas in July and August. Let's just put it that way. Right. Um, assuming the tri-state area will not be involved. Yeah. As, as a hub for anything. Yeah. Even though proximity-wise, that would make sense because there's so many teams that are peppered around there. Sure. Um, but obviously, you know, the whole pandemic thing. Yeah. Not a, good in New York right yeah. now. Yeah. They're talking Orlando being another one of them, mm. obviously, because hotels and whatnot. Arizona. 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 Another Solid another great location. hockey uh yeah, hockey yeah, temperature. The hockey markets are really really showing up for this <laughs> Just, one. It is interesting to see what'll happen. What do you think of the format? You know, so just to clarify, and we don't have a clear answer on this yet, but the top four teams from each conference will have a bye. And they'll be waiting for their opponent who will be playing. I don't even know if this is single elimination or not, but yeah. <clears throat> it's bracketed so that the the remainder of the teams are going to be playing top to bottom seeding to see who joins the Elite Eight, so to speak, to make it a 16-team playoff once again. <laughs> this is like if anyone's seen basketball, when they try to explain the basketball playoffs – this is this is where we're at right now. This it's oh, a great reference. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's so, uh, so, so, but but the point is, hockey will be played at. I some wish point. Robert Stack were alive to help us. Damn right, he did solve every mystery, didn't he? Yeah. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a little messy, but I I kind of like it. You know, I kind of like it. I to the point where I'm like, do it every year. <laughs> Let's trim. Look, hear me out. Let's trim this regular because obviously by doing that the regular season becomes less relevant, right? Mm-hmm. Let's trim the regular season down to like sixty something games. Let's do this play in for everyone except the top eight teams in the league. You'll make up those games in with that extra round, let's say hypothetically. Mm-hmm. Let's do it. Why not? Let's change it up. I personally would love to see it have the bottom seven teams. You're out. You're in the <laughs> you're in the draft gear in Jerry offseason. Everyone else, you have a shot. If we're gonna embrace parody, let's really let's just really go for it. Just here. really go deep into it, huh? Why not? So you could, I guess you could theoretically, if we're all right, let's 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 talk crazy alternate NHL universe here, since we're going deep into it and really there's not a whole lot else to talk about. You could trim it down to a 78 game regular season mm-hmm. and then have if you're doing a 24 team playoff format, then you assuming you do the same thing, the top eight, top four from each conference automatically get a first round buy. And then you have a 16 team play in tournament, best of five say for that first round. All right. Cause then if you have, if they're playing 78 games, if it's a best of five, even if they play yes. five games, it ends up being roughly 83 versus 82 regular season games. Wonderful. So, um, so then you do a best of five first round and then you just take what you get from there and then you start the regular 32-team playoff um, best of seven series and go from there. And no one's playing any real extra games in doing that. Right. You did all the heavy lifting. I'm, I'm an idea man. See, I just want an idea. That's you what do you do. That. So we're on the same page with this. 
essentially. It's not the worst idea. I'm gonna. I'm not, not gonna lie to you. It, it's. I know they're not gonna do it. And I know we're just having fun, but it would. Like it's just more interesting that way that you're never out of it because the Kings of 2012 when they won from the eighth seed were like the exception. But now with yeah. St. Louis coming back from essentially coming back from the dead, worst team to the best team in the league, uh, right via the Stanley Cup. We're seeing that anything can happen, anything can change at any point, and there. How many truly terrible teams are there now in the NHL? Right, there really aren't. Even the Kings, how they're constructed right now, getting hot towards the end of the season. At you know, if for nothing else, they excite the fan base, they break some hearts of some other teams, and the drama. And I think this is what makes March Madness so interesting for so many people is that there's this unpredictable nature to the tournament, to the brackets, that no matter how seasoned you are, a, a fan, an expert, whatever, your bracket gets busted almost every season. And, and I will say this. Once the once there's 32 teams, um, it actually puts a good deal of emphasis on the importance of the regular season because if you take the top two teams from each division at that point and you give them a first-round bye – then the regular season really matters. That's right. right. Like then you're then you're not in this like initial sixteen team tournament with the potential of getting eliminated by some underdog, whatever. Top two teams in every division get a bye. That matters, man. That's 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 how you do a wild card, in my opinion. Huge rest before the playoffs. So important for teams that are veteran heavy, which a lot of these teams that were that are in the top eight are veteran teams. You know, you look at the St. Louis's, Boston, Tampa, Washington. These are veteran teams that earned the right to have this buy the way it's proposed. And tell me that's not a huge boost to them. I mean, hypothetically, if this was a full off yeah, season, yeah, yeah. not everyone didn't have just have a freaking three month break. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Huge, huge. The um, trade deadline becomes useless, though, because no one will trade anyone at that point. I mean, that's 24 true. of the 32 well, teams. Well, the bottom seven teams or <laughs> whatever it will. Which really, if you think about it, and we're thinking about it now actively, I can see you. Those aren't those are the teams who make those trades anyway. It's true. You know, the teams that are truly out of it are true are yeah. the ones that are really making those trades anyway. I think teams would still be willing to move teams or move players and still see what happens. Mm. I really do. There's been plenty of teams that have sold at the deadline and suddenly caught fire. Mm-hmm. So you never know. But as it stands right now. The brackets, the top four teams in the West are St. Louis, Colorado, Vegas, and Dallas. In the East, it's Boston, Tampa, Washington, Philly. So that means for the right to play St. Louis, it would be Calgary and Winnipeg right off the bat. Six series right there. Loving it. That's a fast, good series, man. Like, tell me you don't want to see that. Yeah. Um, Vancouver, Minnesota for the right to play Colorado. Not bad. Mm-hmm. Tyler Toffoli. Speaking of which, um, shout out to our boy, the real big art, who was recently at a local rink and found out that Tyler Toffoli has been renting the ice to try to keep in shape. And on one of uh, his oh, sessions, really? yes, and on one of his sessions, uh, hour long sessions, he apparently did like a twenty minute spin and got off because he was out of shape. So hockey's back, baby. Good. <laughs> go. At least that way, I know I'm not the only one. Essentially, me and Tyler Toffoli are in the same shape right now, is what That's you're it. saying. This insider segment brought to you by the real Big Art. <laughs> and, his, and his illegal hockey rink. That's right. Nashville and Arizona for the right to play Vegas. Edmonton and Chicago for the right to play Dallas. I would, Man, now I would love fun, to see that series. That's a Because you have series. a team who's, I think, I think on the uptick versus a team who's on the trending downwards and i think they're like meeting at the point where they're e- evenly matched yeah but which is which anymore what does trends matter now two three right. but i guess i mean like to see the talent chicago still has with the talent rested of, for three months rested for three months and kind of consider the talent of yesteryear right versus mcdavid and dry basically and just see what happens just some bad goaltending on both ends <laughs> just yeah Let's have a good time, man. That's all I'm saying. There's a lot of goals, a lot of offense, very little defense involved in that. And and to your point, this might be one of the only times 
that people would get to see that series. Because when when yeah, would that happen? Seating system, yeah. Yeah, like when would that possibly ever happen again? That you would have a first round Chicago versus Edmonton. I mean, with the trend of both teams, like you were discussing, like it's unlikely. It's an unlikely pairing. That's right. I think that's the one other fun part about this is that I think a lot of these players, just like the fans, even though it sounds like there's not going to be any fans in the building, um, a lot of these players are itching to get back and they're going to go at it hard knowing especially that every game counts as much as it does. And so you're going to get some really fun series to see and it it's going to be like I would imagine like a two and a half, three month tournament at that point. Yeah. And every game is going to matter so much. Once it gets back, when it gets back, it's going to be fun to see. Obviously, the logistics are beyond comprehension right now. Like, I can't even imagine the idea of every NHL player from six teams and their families staying in hotels in one city. That just. <laughs> That's why Vegas it, is a it candidate, like, man. Just... I get that. But even still, that just sounds like a terrible idea in terms of trying to stop an infection from spreading. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, playing hockey is a terrible idea. Yeah, in general. From stopping an yes. infection. I'm just saying, like, if, we're, if that's yeah. where we're going, you know. Yeah. This podcast is a bad idea. No, actually, this is a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> um, in the Eastern Conference, Toronto and Columbus for the right – to play Boston, no matter what Toronto does, no matter how much nature intervenes, no matter how many goddamn pandemics they have to go through, they cannot avoid the Boston Bruins. And if they want to make any kind of noise, they're going to have to go through them again, which makes me happy a little bit, I guess. I don't know. Um, Islanders and Panthers, the Luongo Bowl for the right (laughs) to play, (laughs) for the right to play Tampa, which sucks, you know. The right. Yeah. yeah. For the privilege. The privilege. To play Tampa, who was, I believe was heating up right at, at the best time possible. Um, Carolina and the Rangers for their, for the right to play Washington. That's fun. And and probably my favorite three-team bracket, Pittsburgh and Montreal for the right to play Philadelphia. Damn, that's good. It's good stuff. You're right. Like, it's just a no-lose kind of a little bracket there. Um, so... Some intriguing matchups, some matchups where you just shrug your shoulders at. I'm looking at you, Nashville and Arizona. Yeah. But I hope this passes. I hope everything is is good to go. I would like to see this tournament. I would love to watch these games. Um, from my personal, you know, professional perspective, I guess, it doesn't look like I'm going into the office anytime soon. I'm going to be working from home a lot still. So give me the hockeys. Inject it into my veins. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I'm probably going to be in a very similar situation. Um, yeah. <laughs> it just matters whether my my kid will let me watch hockey over whatever animated thing she's watching at that time, I guess. You could always bust out your phone. It should be fine. That's all I got. That's all I got. Um, the draft, apparently, Vardy. Yeah, the other half of the season. The other half of the season – Last I looked, and maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been just kind of more into this playoff format, but they're still planning on doing the draft like nothing happened. Is that correct? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't know what they're going to do with the timing of this, because especially because before they were discussing going back to doing the lottery the way it used to be, where it was just essentially the top five teams had the chance at the number one pick before they changed it to the three ball lottery where all the non-playoff teams could go. And that would make sense before they had this discussion of a playoff format where now you know that there's going to be at least eight teams or seven teams, as we mentioned, that are not in the playoffs. And then there's going to be a round of, you know, the first round of teams of eight teams that get eliminated to make the usual 15 teams that are out of the playoffs that would otherwise be in the three ball lottery system that they were using. So it's a little bit dependent on when they want this to happen. So if they decide to, that this draft needs to happen in June, regardless, then they're going to have to come up with some different system to account for 
those seven non-playoff teams, potentially. Maybe they do a three-ball lottery, but they only include the seven teams. I guess that's reasonable because now they've decided that the seven teams are not in the playoffs. And so you could just do a lottery of the seven teams instead of the bottom five. But if they decide that they're going to wait on this draft and wait through the first round of the 2014 playoff to see who the first eight teams are that are eliminated to get those usual 15 that they would, that's going to push the draft until at least July or something like that. So I, I don't know what their thoughts are. Um, No one's going to be totally happy. I imagine with whatever solution they come up with right now, I'm sure everyone in Detroit is desperately hoping that they didn't, they do it the old school way and give them the highest possibility even though they would still have the highest probability, but significantly different with a five-team or a seven-team lottery versus a a 15-team lottery. But all indications are they want it done. But maybe with this vote now coming around and there being more momentum and focus on actually getting back to playing the season out, maybe that puts a pin in the idea of let's do the draft, let's do it in June. You know what I mean? Maybe they push things a little bit and they try to establish a bit of normalcy with the draft. You know, what's funny to me. The draft is like the one thing that off the top of your head, you'd be like, okay, this is something that they could do anytime. It's not overly time sensitive. It's not like, God, you can't miss, you know, we can't skip the draft. That would ruin the, you know, the balance of everything. No, (laughs) it's like the opposite (laughs) doing the draft before the actual season is decided ruins the balance of everything right um so i'm kind of surprised that they're so like gung-ho on doing the draft uh because last we spoke they or last we read they were still like yeah june we're gonna do it in june june's the target yeah. date which is you know everything you just pointed out makes it legit that's a logistical nightmare too right there right um so we'll see what happens there i would like vardy for them to go back to the old system because it gives the Kings a better yeah, shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll take that. I mean, it'd be, I, I sincerely have not heard any, like for the amount of momentum and a lot of and the amount of discussion there is right now about the playoff format, I really feel like I haven't heard anything new about the draft format in a, in a while, truthfully. And I think now that they've got, they know for a fact that there's going to be the seven teams that are not in the playoffs, that alone might be enough to kind of like jumpstart the discussion again of mm. how are we going to do this? How are we going to do the picks? How are we going to do the lottery? So slow momentum, bunch of dominoes kind of falling into place, I think. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Hopefully they all, they make sense of it. Hopefully they do it in a concise, clear way that, is as fair to the participants of both the draft and the playoffs as fair as possible. Um, yeah. Vardy, I know you've been watching. We haven't really, really discussed it. I guess this is in person these days. We haven't discussed it in person, but you and I both watching the last dance. Oh yeah. As is apparently the <sighs> entire sports world because the r- ratings on this thing the first episode ratings currently stand somewhere between 15 and 20 million. Which and, is insane. And that's and that's with people who are probably let it run and they're like, oh, I'll just watch it later once all the episodes are in. Right. Imagine like how crazy is that that the entire sports world stopped. <laughs> well, stopped because of the pandemic, but then the entire sports world tuned into this one documentary. It goes to show you number one the power of, in my opinion, one of the best mediums there is, is sports documentaries. And number two, the sheer fascination with Michael Jordan in this country that seemingly will never go away. Yeah. I I think it's a bit of a lightning in a bottle scenario for them, obviously, because they moved up the date of the, of the premiere of it because all this was going on and brilliant. Everyone was incredibly brilliant. Incredibly. I mean, it created content for them out of nowhere. Like the ESPN had nothing to talk about and they had this thing sitting in cans that they were going to, you know, put up an out, a month or two afterwards. 
And then all of a sudden it became the topic of conversation for everyone, including us. And I think what's really interesting to me, and I, I, we've read this article, was what led to the creation of this in the first place. Because they, they had this archival footage and they had made an agreement with Michael Jordan that they would not ever make the documentary until he gave them the okay. So it was like, it was an initial okay to record. And then they, they, he basically was just like, never going to bring it up again, but they wanted the footage just in case, which is a brilliant move of then NBA media, whatever Adam Silver, now commissioner Adam Silver. So then finally a bunch of people tried to make this thing. And, um, the guy who made the Allen Iverson 30 for 30, which was also really good. No crossover. Great. Right. That's Great. the one. Yeah. Um, finally wrote a letter to Michael, which I thought was really great because you and I, as kids growing up in the 90s, like we saw Jordan. We saw him play. We saw Magic play. We saw all these guys play. And so even though maybe the memory of that has kind of faded, you knew why he mattered. You knew why the man had his had his silhouette stapled on shoes that people were still wearing who weren't alive while he while he was playing. You know what I mean? Like you and I still knew why he mattered, even if we even if we couldn't necessarily remember specifics the way that some of his fans definitely do. But to me, the best thing was when they wrote to him and they basically were just like, "There's people out there who know your name, who wear shoes." And close with your image on them who've never seen you play and have never had an appreciation for why you are as important as you are to the sporting world. And it's time for them to learn, which is kind of plain to his ego, obviously, which, which you have to do. You have, you, you if you have watch this do. documentary, you know that you have to play to Michael Jordan's ego. Right. Um, but it's, it's a brilliant thing. And it convinced him finally to do it. And, what an achievement it ended up being, honestly. It's wonderful. Um, another story I read, I don't know how true it is, but connected to the – remember that LeBron James interview he did right after the 2016 NBA Finals? I think it was on his – he has an HBO program. Uh, yeah. I forget what it's called. The Barbershop. Or the Barbershop. There you go. And he was um, he was on it and, and they were having a discussion – with Rich Paul and a couple of other guys. And I think he just flat out said that after he won the 2016 championship, after the Cavs won, he said to himself, now you're the greatest player of all time. Straight right. up. He just said, you know, now you're the, he said, LeBron, now you're the greatest. LeBron is saying this. And, um, <laughs> I validated to myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't know if it's true, but wouldn't be surprised that the, as soon as Jordan saw that, he was like, we're making this goddamn documentary. <laughs> I 100% believe that. The man the man creates grudges out of exactly. thin air. And the one thing about Jordan, he's never come out and said, I'm the great. He's never said it. You can go back. You could try to find any footage of this guy other than like, you know, secondhand accounts of him trash talking someone or whatever. You will never find one clip of him saying, I'm the greatest basketball player of all time. When he is unanimously considered the great, and that's the most fascinating thing about him, and you know he know he's literally know. on every shoe. If you look on the inside label of every Jordan, it says created to the exact specifications of yes. the greatest basketball player. Of all yes, time. but he'll never say it, right? He'll never say it. <laughs> he and, doesn't have to; it's in print. <laughs> and, but but LeBron did, you know. LeBron does. He doesn't like. It's a whole other thing of like not caring, and you know Michael thinks he's come on. Watch the documentary. Yeah. And we have, don't not even watch 10 minutes of the first episode <laughs> and you'll figure it out. But anyway, I absolutely, absolutely loved it. I mean, I have been a Michael Jordan fan since I was a kid. Um, I have this like DVD box set called Ultimate Jordan that I bought when I was younger. And it has like four documentaries in it of like different years. And it has like five of his best games. So a lot of this stuff wasn't exactly groundbreaking new. To me, but there's stuff in there, man. That the practice footage, especially, is so compelling, and and the fact that it's uncensored, that you're the locker room footage, things like that, and we've talked about that on this podcast. How special 
that kind of content is to us and right. how badly we want hockey content like that that we kind of get with like the 24 sevens road to the winter classic stuff like that but this is different in the sense that the filmmaker and the athlete were willing to show you some darkness in there not just you know fluff pieces which by the way that dvd box set every documentary on it is a complete fluff like the fluffiest thing you'll ever see michael well those you know michael came back michael's dad you know his triumphant comeback like nothing about gambling like you know well those documentaries were made at the time where no one wanted to make a documentary like this correct you know you you never i think it took a lot and truthfully it was there's probably the 30 for 30 series that made it okay to display the flaws of athletes for viewing pleasure and once you once you get over that hurdle and you humanize people or idols, I think that makes for much more compelling television, movie, whatever you want to call it. But it also, in a weird way, it makes it makes you idolize those people even more at the end of it, right? Because you're looking at these people as like superhuman in a lot of ways, perfect, unattainable, unachievable to that level. So then you bring them down to the human level by showing their flaws and airing them out. And then all of a sudden, it makes the viewer, potentially someone who's a younger person watching this stuff be like he's just like me and he overcame all these things and overcame all these personal flaws and for a lot of people like where he came from you know like and now he's idolized and so i think that that creates a better connection than just like a 60 minute fluff piece of like look how amazing michael jordan is try to be like him you never will (laughs) you know right right which is amazing because what you just said directly connects to why Specifically, his shoes exploded the way they did starting in 1985 because it was very much like, look at this guy. He's so much like me, and now I want to wear his shoes. This is before he was Michael Jordan, like, with the aura around him, right? This is when... This is when he was just doing things differently, when his shoe was banned, when everyone's like, that rebel attitude. It's like, he's like me, and I want to wear his shoes. So it's kind of a nice little bridge of, like, two two different guys in two different eras who obviously are the same person, but ditto for his shoes, man. You know, you and I love sneakers. Um, we could very well, if we wanted to do a whole sneaker podcast. <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> the shoes played such an important part in this in this 10 part documentary for me it was anyway. a whole episode it was a oh, whole I know. episode it was a whole episode but it's also sprinkled in everywhere else right maybe you have to know the shoes to know uh but what a amazing piece of content for michael jordan both for his brands for himself and it's amazing that a sociopath can be so loved and respected he's a sociopath 100 percent and so, and, and you know, so is Kobe. So was Kobe. Rest in peace. Like they were terrifying in their mentality. That's not, you know, whatever you want to call normal. A lot of people will look at that and say that's not normal to be that right. way, to be that obsessed with winning, to be that willing to be a bully, a tyrant, to mentally like destroy your opponent and then physically dis- destroy your opponent. It's just, but that's the stuff that reinforces how superhuman these people are in many ways. Yeah. Because it may not be the greatest superpower to be a sociopath and right. obsessed with winning, but it still is a superpower. Right. Right. And I think, you know, to bring it back to the to what we typically talk about, like we've we've tried talking about this and I've seen this all over Twitter and every sport's kind of talking about it, I'm sure, but how would you make something like this for a hockey team or a hockey player like it's it's so drastically different and i truly don't know i'm sure there are some hockey players who possess that level of you know sociopathy if you will and that drive and determination to win um but i feel like it's just it's rare you know what i mean i i I don't there's I can't think of an example it's off too the top hard. of my head. No, it's too yeah. hard. The sport, it just you, It's a different sport. Absolutely it's a different there's sport. Been, like, right, it's a different sport. We know that. 
But there, how many instances can you look at and be like, this guy put his team on his back and won the game? A game, not a series, yeah. not yeah. a championship, a game. Off the top of my head, I think of like two. Gretzky game seven against Toronto. Gretzky game seven, Toronto. Messier game six against New Jersey. Those are when he said we'll win and he got the hat trick. Right. Right. These are the only two. And if you even watch those games, it was just, it just worked out that they got the puck in the right spot. They had their looks. They got their goals. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just a lot of things had to go right. It's not like any day Mark Messier could this if he just turned on that switch and said, "No, man, not today." It's not going to work. Yeah, it, it worked that one time, and it's the same thing with with Gretzky in in Game Seven against Toronto. It worked. All you know, everything aligned. And by the way, like the closest comparisons to like someone who said who got that pissed literally is is like Wayne Gretzky Game Seven in Toronto when the guy in that elevator said, "Oh, after the game, there's going to be a party, uh, and my job's going to start at." Uh, 11 o'clock right. today right he's like don't worry about your job starting at 11 because my job starts at seven you know that's like someone saying this is what's going to happen and then goes out and does it rare in hockey and you Very would never rare. expect that from a guy like wayne because this this is the other thing is like you need a compelling personality to to really drive i mean let's be honest here it's, it's supposed to be a 10-part documentary about the 97 98 bulls but it's like 85 percent about michael jordan they do a good job of like doing the Scotty Pippen episode, the Phil Jackson episode, the Dennis Rodman episode, but it all comes back to right, the right because even in those episodes, it's still a Michael Jordan. Episode. Right, it's like what are what are Michael's <laughs> thoughts on Scotty Pippen? Or like what? <laughs> what are, or while you know Phil is doing this, let's go back to MJ in like 1987. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm trying to think of like someone who who has that level of of gravitas, if you will. And in, in terms of impact on the game, Wayne Gretzky is obviously the most important player in the history of hockey. But I try to think of like a 10-part documentary on, I don't know, let's say 80s Oilers or even or even 92-93 Kings. Right. You want to talk about a dramatic team. That is 100% the one I would do on the Kings. Yeah. Granted, we're biased, but like – I'm trying to think of a dramatic team that has involved Gretzky. That's the one that comes to mind to me. And I try to think about a 10-part documentary about the 92-93 Kings, obviously going back and forth. And I'm just like, I'll watch it because I love hockey and I love the Kings. But can I honestly tell you that it's going to have that type of just like social pull where everyone is everyone is like water cooler conversation about like, you know, hey, did you watch The Last Skate or whatever they decide to call it? <laughs> the Last Lap. Yeah. The, la the yeah. Last Assist. Yeah. I don't know. It just, I don't think it has that pull. And that's <laughs> the, the, the nature. The Last Pucks in Deep. <laughs> that's what I'm going to call it. The Last Dump and Chains. Right. But no, I get what you mean. Um, that 92, 93, let's say, we, it, it's like four episodes max, right? Yeah, maybe five because, and and I'll bring this to a Kings thing first, and then we can go to the rest of the NHL. I was really thinking about like, okay, I'm sticking directly to the Kings. What documentary can be made related exactly and only to the Kings that could that could be more than one episode, more than one episode, and be dramatic? Obviously, we have for anyone who watches Thirty for Thirty or loves Thirty for Thirty, Kings Ransom. But I believe Peter Berg was the director. Yeah, that exists and it's good. Um, and even that, you really had to. I feel like Peter Berg was really just yanking it out of Gretzky to like just say anything that right. hasn't already been said. You know, right. bring something new to the and and he was successful. You know, I thought he was successful. It's it's intriguing to me. Like I'll I like that documentary. Do I think it's one of the best thirty for thirties? No, and I you know I'm. We love hockey, and it's not even close to being one of the best 30 for 30s. So we got to put – my point is you got to put the trade aside. That's been done. It's an easy one. It's probably a no-brainer to just mm -hmm. do that one trade. But even that, can you really extend it to multiple episodes? Yeah, I, I sincerely doubt that. It's hard. I was thinking about this. I was thinking to me 
if you were to try to do it, and again, this has been done in piecemeal at individual things, like if someone were to give me a, you know, a how many how many years would it be now for the Kings? Next year's they're what? They're sixty seven. Yeah, so they're I can't do math right now. They're fifty something. 53rd, 54th. Sure, their 50th was two years ago. Wasn't okay, it? so three yeah. years ago, whatever. Okay, so let's say, so if someone were to get together and do a 50 year oh recap of the Kings, that sucks, dude. And try to make it like a seven part, eight part documentary on the first 50 years of the Kings, would I care? Dude, there's like. 30 years in there where no one wants any – like what do you want to do with that? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Like you would have to – if you're trying to describe the highs and the lows, the creation, the evolution, the trade, and you split that up into like six episodes, tops, how much drama could you actually no. find? Like could you find archival footage? Could you find backstage footage of like the players being frustrated when they're losing games and stuff like that? No. Can you find, can you find like backstage footage or whatever – locker room talk about you know Gretzky showing up for the first time and the, the team doing okay and then Gretzky getting traded yeah. and the team's reaction to it Friction all like friction with Robitaille like right. Gretzky's so reaction where coffee got traded there's great stuff there so you know that stuff is there but and maybe there's even footage of it but they're never going to they're never going to reveal it like it you know you needed you needed someone to have the forethought back then like Adam Silver did when they were filming this whole thing in 97 and 98 to actually record it and get them to agree to eventually make a film out of it. I guess that's, that's my issue is that and maybe this is just a hockey thing, but there's a, there's a reluctance to show the warts of the game, you know? Sure. 100%. Some of this. Yeah. And, and we've been, we've talked about this many times Particularly in the case of P.K. Subban, not that he has warts, but he has a personality. And sometimes right. that personality ends up being stifled or attempted to be stifled or it doesn't fall into some, I don't know, archaic code of conduct that yeah. organizations or even the league as a whole has. But yeah, that's a, that exactly, man. And even, you know, you look at, 20, let's look at 2012 and 2014. 2012 had no drama on the ice. The Kings mm-hmm. bulldozed everybody. Highly doubt there was any drama off the ice. You know, that team gelled pretty quick and there was, you know, yeah, there was a coaching change. There was a nice trade. But really, what else could there be there that you're like, oh, wow. Of course, again, hockey is very secretive, so there might be like this ocean of information there. But on the ice, there's no drama. Just killing everybody. And I guess that's what it comes down to is I don't know if there's any willingness no matter how many of these documentaries are made, no matter how many of these, like, you know, NBA produced, ESPN produced, huge stories come out that become real culturally important films or TV series. I don't know if if there's a desire within the NHL to make something like The Last Dance. Say they even had a character like that who yeah. was, you know... Like we had talked that maybe Ovechkin is a you know a driven dude personality. All those things are there. I sincerely don't know if there's any desire within the NHL community whatsoever to make a movie like The Last Dance. And that's a shame. That is such a shame because that is one of the main reasons why this league isn't as popular as it was. Yeah. Back in. 1994 when you know they were talking about how i should say like right around the time the rangers won the stanley cup when jordan was out of basketball there was talks of like nhl is overtaking the nba Mm -hmm. in popularity in the united states a sentence that would absolutely baffle anyone under the age of 25 right now just completely blow their mind out of the back of their head how impossible a sentence that might that must sound like something but they were right there they were right there for one moment in time and for whatever reason and we could that's a whole other podcast it never got to that next level and i think a large part is because of their lack of access their their 
lack of willingness to to pull back the curtain just a little bit and show you some something that maybe you weren't supposed or make a fan feel like yeah i'm supposed to see all this but man i wasn't supposed to see that yeah that's a great feeling when you're inside like that and uh we need more of that yeah i i think they just need to get over it's this weird personality thing that they have where they keep talking about wanting to be more accessible wanting to be more popular wanting to have more kids playing the game and growing the game and yet at the same time i feel like they constantly want to stay a niche sport and it's not just the nhl either man it's the players too i'm gonna call totally. out the players too 100 percent. the, the one players. thing when you watch the last dance and you watch these guys they all act like they're stars is they act like i i'm i'm a effing star man i know i'm a star i walk like i'm a star i talk like i'm a star when there's a camera in the room my personality doesn't shy away or hide or cower it comes out even more the volume goes even higher than what it usually is and nhl players aren't like that watch any 24 7 yeah they drop a few f-bombs that's great but really all they're saying is the same shit they say in interviews except with an f-bomb in there right. or like you know they say one word there here and it's the same thing but the funny thing is you know they have personalities you know they have better personalities in that from even these like little random zoom phone calls that they're doing or the little backstage stuff that like each team produces you're like i don't know who's stifling these guys i don't know if it's the coaches i don't know if it's the organization but overall the muzzle that they have on the players as a whole or this person you know how they're supposed to act and whatnot it ends up hurting the growth of the game and and the popularity of the game way more than it protects the sanctity of it in my opinion yeah and like i said i think some of it might be just self-muzzlement <laughs> just because they think they're supposed to act a certain way or they think you know I'm, i gotta protect the team the league whatever right um when it could be very well that no one ever instructed them to do that it's just something like this cultural thing with hockey that just exists i don't know but it would be great man it would be great you know 2014 for example all the drama's on the ice there all right now what happened behind the scenes we'll never know like is right. there you know was there problems this is when already mike richards was starting to i guess i was i was gonna say spiral but that's really dark but it's trying to you know, his career was starting to end. It was towards the back end of his career, unfortunately, at right. a very young age. There's stuff there. You know, this is probably around the time when Daryl was too hard on the team, uh, like starting to wear on him, right? There's this whole right. Justin Williams in the playoffs. Mr. Game 7 finally comes out and becomes... So there's more there, but again, I don't know if we're ever going to see it. I have, you know, the NHL-produced Stanley Cup DVD. I have the Kings-produced Stanley Cup moments. Cool. Right. I love it. Which but... are which are clean as a whistle and they're, you know, nicely right. tailored for yeah. your enjoyment and happiness. Yeah. Like if they were to make a big documentary that that carried that basically followed the team through 2014 through the playoffs and through the horrific first 6 months of the 20 uh 2014-2015 season. Yeah. Into that 2015 I mean, those were some insane years that i can't even imagine the amount of stuff that happened backstage that really tore this team apart right you can speculate there's been tons of articles but if ever that was made into a movie man the draft that would alone, be captivating and we've talked <laughs> yeah man 2015 draft alone which we still talk about doing a banner moments standalone episode for it. and i think eventually we will i just right now is a weird time obviously yeah um but just that draft man and just that yeah you're right that's a great great example it's not pretty there's no you know there's no positivity with that it's just all bad really yeah <laughs> and, and if you think i mean just think about it on the surface if someone pitches this to you okay team comes together wins was it three straight game sevens and then finally wins a cup in game six, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. Okay. So they a team comes together, wins its second cup. Oh, no. They beat the Rangers in game five. Five. Sorry. Okay. So so the team comes together, wins three straight game sevens, including a reverse sweep, to win its second Stanley Cup in three years' time. Riding high, doing fantastic. 
and then within the next season completely crumbles on and off the ice in in ways that set in motion the GM that has won those first two cups, the coach who has won those cups being let go. And I mean, that is just the narrative in and of itself is amazing. It's amazing. And I can't think of a good way to do that without actually having, you know, like, and you could do the interviews. That's the other thing. Like, let's say you got, say you had no archival footage beyond game film and a few sanitized backroom conversations right so you just decided that okay we're going to interview these guys we're going to try to interview mike richards we're going to try to interview dean lombardi we're going to try to interview daryl sutter the people who are really in there and can provide you with some insight maybe fill in the blanks of what you don't know you would never get those interviews no that would never happen i mean look mike richards was on barstool like a couple i want to say a couple of months ago but sometime last year in the fall which is uh, Spit and Chicklets, a great podcast. Um, and he even said, like, I can't talk about it. Like, I think Paul Bizonet, not flat out asked him, but he kind of said, hey, man, you want to talk about how it ended in L.A.? And he's like, I can't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Whether it be legal, I think it was a legal thing. Probably. <clears throat> so, you know, he's, gonna, he's not going to talk about it. But if you have that footage right there and then, you know, maybe you, there's a chance, obviously, you're still legally not allowed to show it. But at right. least you have it for the time. You know, I don't know. I don't, even, just, I don't even know if you could have the reporters talk about it. I'll be honest. Like, I don't know if you would even have, you know, Rich Hammond would be able to come on and tell you exactly what was going on at that time. Right. Or the mayor yeah. or whoever. Was or the coming. mayor or, or, or anyone or any one of these guys who are like right there, the way they had like Jay Adonde or whoever, mm-hmm. you know, fill in in the blanks for, on the last dance. Like, I... I just don't think that they would be willing for whatever reason. And I think this is very unique to hockey to come out and help you tell that story openly. It's, it's, it's sort of fascinating how the deconstruction of the team is far more interesting than the construction of the team. But it only, but it only matters because the team was constructed and won. Not it's just the rise one, had a three-year that run that really you could match up with anyone in in the post-expansion or sorry the post-lockout era. Yeah. Really, three years like it, that you can't like even Chicago didn't have three years like yeah, that. Yeah, man, it was it was one hundred percent a dynasty. I don't think there's any any way of disputing for the success that that team had in three years, and the rise and the fall of not to get cliche with the title, but like the rise and the fall of the Kings across the across those like that five season period from 2012 to 2016. That is a that is a story, man. Yeah. That is a huge story. Yeah, if it, like you know, going specifically, if it started with just a quick, not even a quick, just go through the 2014 playoffs and everything that happened, introduce the the players there, the characters there, and then roll into the off season and just start deconstructing that next season. Right. And then the, and then the, the season that followed, which was the fall, which was like, okay, now we're really done after San Jose beat the crap out of them in five games, man, that is compelling stuff. And it's, yeah. it's great stuff and we'll never see it. Nope. All you can do is hope. Nope. Or we can make it one day, Vardy. What do you think? The good news is now it's it's recorded. So if anyone <laughs> steals this idea from us, we got him. Hey, I do have, you know, filmmaking abilities. <laughs> You're a pretty damn good writer, storyteller. I think we could do it. All right. You heard it here first, fans. All right. This is our last episode because we are now <laughs> filmmakers. <laughs> All uh, on that note, episode 56. Indeed. It is episode 56. Four players have worn the number 56 for the Kings. Go. Curtis McDermott. Nailed it. Man, I feel like there's a goalie in here. (laughs) Uh, I I don't believe so. Okay. I wouldn't. I I mean, it's. No, no. it's It's as random a number as any, but. Uh, I, don't, no. I don't think I'm going to get anyone else, man. 
Uh, but I'm going to try to have you throw some years at me. Why not? Sure. So the first one was in 1992. Okay. I actually played several seasons with the Kings. I'm no kidding. 91, um, 92, 92, 93, 93, really? 94, and played 20-plus games in each one of those seasons. And he wore number 56 all and those he seasons? Number 56. Maybe not all those seasons. Let me see. That's important, isn't it? The first, the first season he did, uh, and then he switched. To what? Well, that would be giving it away. <laughs> Is it really? Uh, I think it might. Okay. To you, it would. Okay. Okay. So his first season, 1992, he had number 56. Mm-hmm. 91, <clears throat> 92, he had 56. Okay. Oh, 91, 92. But that's fine. That's fine. I'll give it. He switched to number three. So that should help you at least positionally. Yeah, but this guy didn't even crack the roster. I mean, yeah, he played 20 games in 1992-93, but he wasn't on. He wasn't a top six defenseman. Certainly didn't play 20 preseason games. <laughs> I know, I, I get it, but I guess what I'm saying is I know the top six of the 92-93 team. Ah, uh, I and see. And he ain't it. He ain't it. He ain't no, it. definitely not. Um, definitely not. Yeah. I should still probably know this, though. Huh. Yeah. He actually got four playoff games in in 91-92. Oh, good. The Kings got bounced in the first round by Edmonton. So there you go. Good job, buddy. Um, don't got it. It is uh, one Brent Thompson. Oh, I was going to say. Why didn't you say it? You, had nothing, you literally had nothing to lose in this game where there is nothing at stake. Brent Thompson once gave me a, me and my cousin an autograph. Was it was him and who else was in this story? You told it a few episodes back. I can't, rem- I can't remember the other one, but yeah, there was someone else in there. But Brent Thompson was the other one. Well, all right then. <laughs> yes. Um, um, yeah. Okay. I, let's let's try the other ones. Why not? Because I. Okay. Um, the yeah. other two are are familiar names to me. Okay. Definitely. Years. Years. Uh, twenty uh, two thousand nine, But played for is a couple this, other teams after is this that. The Clunatic. It is indeed the Clunatic. <laughs> Richard Clune, that's right. The years helped Rich on Clune. that one. Yeah. Okay. And then there's one more. Um, played only a couple games actually in 0506 and then went to Pittsburgh for a little bit. Uh, you don't seem to. <laughs> It's I'm not, not gonna particularly. Get Connor James. Yeah, wasn't gonna get Connor James. Now we did a fun little thing last time. I should have gone. Um, hold on, I should have gone three out of four. I'm very upset. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. Go take your moment. <laughs> you know, no one knows more number fifty sixes than I do. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, that was I had a presidential moment there. Um, yeah, go ahead, Vardy. You were saying. So last time we did a fun little thing. I want to. Keep it going, where I I tried to get you to guess who the other who were the greatest players to have ever worn the number fifty five oh, yeah. Yeah. last time because it had some relevance to the Kings and that Larry Murphy had worn it. I want to see if you want to hazard a guess as to who the greatest player to have ever worn the number fifty six was. Man, that's a tough number. That's a really tough number. And no one's coming to mind just yet. It's obviously not a very popular sure, number. Sure, sure, sure. But obviously, but I, there's a clear-cut number one, I'm guessing. 100%. <clears throat> In fact, it's such a clear-cut number one that the number two and number three that they voted on are not even, like, worthwhile. Wow. They're, yeah. I mean, they're they're active. Number two and number three are active players mm-hmm. who you will know if I mention them to you, but years from now, I doubt you will remember them. But this one is – I want to I, – I sincerely, I have to check and see if he is in the Hall of Fame or not. I think he's close to it. Does Roman Yossi wear 56? No. Okay. I, don't, I know he's not this, this guy. I'm just, just curious if he wears 56. Does old Roman wear? Is it fifty-eight? 
It's in the 50s, I think. It's a weird number. Yeah. It's 59. 59. That's right. That's right. But yes, no, this number 56 is a Hockey Hall of Famer Ooh. last year. Ooh. Oh my. That should be a, that should be it right there, but it's it's not happening for me. I'm ashamed. Dude. This is, this is one that like even my feeble mind knew immediately. Wow. You know what? We'll we'll blame it on the pandemic. We haven't done this I in a couple remember. months. Who went into the Hall of Fame? You last didn't get year? Brent Thompson. You're not going to get this guy. <laughs> Obviously. All right, you ready? No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, go. We'll, we'll just leave it on silence for the next ten minutes of the no, podcast. Go for it. Sergey Zubov, man. Yeah, man. Yeah. <sighs> Come that's, on. That's for shame. <laughs> for shame. Yeah, man. Very underrated, man. Very. Incredibly. Slow and steady, <laughs> just just an incredibly steady all around defenseman. Yeah. Um, is there like seriously? If you look at if you think about the most underrated players in league history, his name has to come up. I know that's a big kind of title to put on someone, but his name has to come up, man. He's so underrated, so good. Yeah. Did he? he did he win a no. Norris? Nope. Never. That's, that's won two see. cups. Yeah. Once ninety four with the Rangers and then ninety nine with Dallas. Yeah. He's only made four All Star games, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand, and then two thousand and eight. Was his second the highest overall achievement he had was um, as as an individual player. I think was being voted to the NHL uh, All NHL All Star team, but the second team in two thousand six, which is interesting because that's a year he was not even in the All Star game. Yeah. But he made it to the second NHL All-Star team. Um, wow. And yet, through all that, Hockey Hall of Fame last year. Highest. 700, 771 points in a 1,068 <clears throat> NHL games. Highest voting he ever got for the Norris was third in 05-06. Yep. And international-wise? yeah. International-wise, like his achievements are not that impressive either because he won gold in in the world juniors in 89 and then in 92 with the like a unified soviet team but most of his achievements are in the nhl but when you look at this 771 points in a thousand games a lot of those games in the modern era mind you with a lot of trap games and things like that while he was in dallas still managed two cups barely got any individual recognition while he was in the NHL and then voted into the Hall of Fame last year. Yeah. Well, clearly deserved it, so that's good. And it was so clearly the greatest, number 56 of all time. Yeah. The other two are like Eric Halla and Marco Dano. Oh, my. So. Yeah, yeah. Slim Pickens at 56. Indeed. Um, but that that's, being said... That's 56. That being said... I'm I'm going to add to our equal per 60 on this one and dedicate this episode to one Curtis McDermott for the reasons being that I said, I think it was two seasons ago, whenever it was, when he first played, I said that if Curtis McDermott played another NHL game for the Kings, that we were in serious trouble. <laughs> and now he has not only played games, he's become somewhat of a fixture in the lineup. I still don't think he's that good. And I still but think the Kings are in serious trouble. Just really and, I, and I still think the Kings are in serious trouble. Yeah. But Curtis McDermott is an is an LA King, for better or for worse. And this episode goes to him. Big man. Mia culpa. Curtis McDermott. Mia culpa. It's beautiful, man. It really was big man. Thank you. This uh, one's for you. It was heartfelt. It was. Um, Hopefully we'll be back. <laughs> I mean, no, that was sad. We will be back. Guys. We're going to come back. We're going to come back, and I think we're going to come back with some hockey, I hope. Some, you know, no attendance. You could hear everything. <laughs> Censor, mute guys. I'm actually the- <laughs> looking forward to that. That's going to be yeah. great. Yeah. The it's going to be like when we play beer league games. The production truck are just going to be on pins and needles. 
<laughs> just to make sure just that seven bleeping. second delay is going to be huge. It's going to be so much bleeping. Maybe this will be the back, uh, the the locker room raw right. footage we're right. asking for. The last dance. Actually, it would be a, this would be a great documentary mm-hmm. of just like this whole playoff tournament and just the madness surrounding it. That would be nice. Hopefully, someone hopefully someone's smart enough to record it, man. Yeah, and I will leave you with this, Vardy. I've decided that the best. 10-part hockey documentary anyone can make is about the Summit Series from a non-Canadian perspective. I like that. That'd be good. That's the one. That'd be good. You've been listening to The Bannerman, an LA Kings podcast.